Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about loving the hell out of this world with a little bit more courage to do so. I'm Reverend Shum, one of your hosts, and today on the podcast, it is our final episode in our series, Time Management for Mortals. Today, we are diving into the world of regret. All those feelings of things not wishing we had a do-over, feeling like it's not too, wondering if it is too late, in fact, for us. And so Reverend Elaine is going to be sharing a message with you all today, and it's a really beautiful one. And to kind of put us in the in the space, in the, the context for it, I'm going to read a little excerpt of a convocation speech by the writer George Saunders. This was given to the graduating class of Syracuse University in 2013. To give you some context for the kind of the way it begins, he began his speech by making some self-deprecating jokes about his more advanced age in comparison to the age of the shiny young graduates. And that's kind of where we begin. One of the useful things you can do with an old person, in addition to borrowing money from them or asking them to do one of their old-timey dances you can watch while laughing, is ask, looking back, what do you regret? And they'll tell you. Sometimes, as you know, they'll tell you even if you haven't asked. Sometimes, even when you've specifically requested, they not tell you, they tell you. So, what do I regret? Being poor from time to time? Not really. Working terrible jobs like knuckle puller in a slaughterhouse? And don't even ask what that entails. No, I don't regret that. Skinning Dipping in the river in Sumatra, a little buzzed, and looking up and seeing like 300 monkeys sitting on a pipeline pooping down into the river, the river in which I was swimming with my mouth open and naked, and getting deathly ill afterwards and staying sick for the next seven months? Not so much. Do I regret the occasional humiliation, like once playing hockey in front of a big crowd, including this girl I really liked, I somehow managed while falling and admitting this weird whooping noise to score on my own goalie while also sending my stick flying into the crowd nearly hitting that girl? No, I don't even regret that. But here's something I do regret. In seventh grade, this new kid joined our class. In an interest of confidentiality, her convocation speech will be named, will be Ellen. Ellen was small, shy, She wore these blue cat-eye glasses that, at the time, only old ladies wore. When nervous, which was pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of her hair into her mouth and chewing on it. So she came to our school and our neighborhood and was mostly ignored, occasionally teased. Your hair tastes good, that sort of thing. I could see this hurt her. I still remember the way she'd look after such an insult eyes cast down, a little gut kicked, as if having just been reminded of her place in things. She was trying as much as possible to disappear. After a while, she'd drift away, hair strand still in her mouth. At home, I imagined, after school, her mother would say, you know, how was your day, sweetie? And she'd say, oh, fine. And her mother would say, making any friends? And she'd go, sure, lots. Sometimes I'd see her hanging around alone in her front yard, as if afraid to leave it. And then they moved. 
that was that. No tragedy, no big final hazing. One day she was there, the next day she wasn't. End of story. Now, why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about it? Relative to most of the other kids, I was actually pretty nice to her. I never said an unkind word to her. In fact, I sometimes even mildly defended her. But it still, it bothers me. So here's something I know to be true, although it's a little corny, and I don't quite know what to do with it. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when, when, when another human being was there in front of me suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mild. I'll turn it over to Reverend Elaine. Alice and I had been friends since the second grade. We had carpooled to Sunday school together. We had played together on the very same softball team and on which I played very badly. We were always in the same grade at the same school. In elementary school, Alice and I both had glasses and we both had perms. And my perm was kind of like a full body, uniform curl kind of look. And Alice, she had just her bangs permed, which you may remember was a look in the 1980s. I remember crouching together with Alice in her bedroom, hovering over her boombox with the radio on and a blank cassette carefully inserted, waiting with bated breath for Ice Ice Baby to come on the radio so we could quickly press play and record at the exact same time and add this song to the totally awesome mixtape that we were dubbing together. With the exception of a fallout in middle school, Alice and I stayed friends from the second grade all the way through high school. And that is where our paths diverged. I fell in with the theater kids, I love doing theater, and Alice found her way to a more popular crowd. And one night on the phone, Alice asked me, would you lose respect for me if I became a cheerleader? And at the time, in my 15-year-old world, it felt like a moral imperative to be against cheerleading. It felt like fighting the man. It felt like taking a stand about something and being true to my budding feminism. So I responded, yes, yes, I would lose respect for you if you became a cheerleader. And I can remember the silence on the other end of the phone and the conversation ended awkwardly shortly thereafter. And while Alice and I remained friendly with each other, our friendship was never the same after that conversation. Like George Saunders thinking about Ellen from our reading this morning, in my mind, I have returned to this exchange countless times over the years. I've seen it through many different lenses at different phases in my life, but something has remained constant, which is I have always wished that I could go back and play it differently. And on this topic of time travel to go back and fix the past, may I add, that when we had the chance to choose band instruments in the fifth grade, I wish I could go back in time and start learning how to play the drums. 
At the time, it felt like too much of a social risk when I already felt too awkward, too big, too generally like I was not doing femininity and girl-like ability quite right. I wish I could go back in time and take back all of the energy I spent focusing on the things I didn't like about my body or trying to make my body smaller. I wish I could go back in time and not wait an entire year and a half in my very first job before letting the executive director know that my direct supervisor extended invitations I felt I couldn't say no to and made me very uncomfortable with her inappropriate comments and very loose boundaries. Just this week, I would go back in time and change a comment I made that prompted a colleague to remind me of the importance of treating everybody with dignity and respect, respecting everybody's dignity. I could go on and on. There's so many things I wish I could do over. We all have these things. Some of them are small things. Some of them loom large in our lives. Some of them feel so big that they're really hard to look at. But even though the thought experiment of traveling back in time is really interesting, we all know that there are no actual do-overs in life. I know this sermon title is not too late, but technically it really is too late to go back and undo things that have already been done. That's just not how time works. You know what's interesting though? If you asked me whether I had any regrets in life, I would really have to stop and think about it. And I might even be tempted to tell you that I don't have any regrets because that word, regret, it's so serious and final. It's so filled with judgment, tinged with failure and shame. Yuck, who wants regrets? Especially in a culture that celebrates having no regrets, or at least celebrates saying that we have no regrets. No regrets has become a personal credo, a defiant tagline, and a fairly popular tattoo from what I understand. And yet, is there anything more human, more relatable than looking back at the past and with a turning in our stomach, recognizing that it would have been better if we had made a different decision or taken a different action or taken some action when we chose to do nothing? That's a regret. It's not disappointment when we believe the outcome was out of our control. It's a regret when we believe an undesirable outcome was the result of something we chose or something we did or something we failed to do. What do we do with our regrets? These deeply uncomfortable, unpleasant, yet essential and unavoidable parts of the human experience. Do we just come to terms with them through sheer will? Do we bury them? Do we ruminate on them until we die? I know it sounds strange, but I've come to believe that our regrets, which feel so awful, are a powerful tool for living a more meaningful and joyful life. But it takes some sincere soul work on our end. It's been the work of writer and researcher Dan Pink that has really gotten me feeling passionate about this lately. 
In writing his book, which is called The Power of Regret, Pink conducted the largest and most comprehensive survey on regret ever attempted, in which he which he called the American Regret Project. In sur surveying 4,489 adults and reading 16,000 submitted regrets, he looked for patterns that revealed some deeper truths about this basically universal human experience. Pink discovered that although people's regrets covered a wide range of categories like career, education, romance, family, the actual regrets themselves had a deeper structure to them. And they fell into four categories, categories that he calls foundation regrets, boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. Foundation regrets are failures to plan ahead, to work hard, or follow through. Failures to do those kinds of things that build a stable platform for our lives. So things like spending too much money, not exercising, not eating healthy foods, not putting in the kind of effort in some arena of life in which we wish we would have applied ourselves more. Then there are boldness regrets and boldness regrets arise when we choose to play it safe instead of taking a chance. And although choosing to play it safe may feel really relieving in the moment, in the long term, we find ourselves wondering if we would have been more fulfilled had we taken the risk. Moral regrets come when we choose what our conscience says is actually the wrong path. According to Pink, moral regrets are the smallest of these four categories of regret, comprising only 10% of all regrets. But these moral regrets ache the most and they last the longest. While the decisions that lead to moral regrets can feel fine at the time, they can haunt us over the long term. Moral regrets say, if only I had done the right thing. And then finally, there are connection regrets. And connection regrets come from relationships that have come undone or that remain incomplete. We yearn to close the circle in these relationships and reconnect, but this would require effort. It would require risking emotional uncertainty and possible rejection. This is the largest category of human regret, according to Pink's research. Connection regrets sound like this. If only I had reached out. In Pink's framing, these four categories of regret act like a kind of photographic negative of the kind of lives we wish to lead. Foundation regrets, boldness regrets, morality regrets, and connection regrets, they show us that the good life is comprised of the opposite of these regrets. The good life looks like stability, growth, goodness, and love. And this is very important information. Here's another interesting thing. As we get older, regrets of inaction begin to dominate. That is, regrets about those things we could have done but chose not to do. Among 20-year-olds, regrets of action and inaction, they're about the same. But once people reach age 50, regrets of inaction are twice as common. Over time, 
people regret the things they didn't do more than the things that they did do. Regret feels terrible, whether you did or didn't do the thing. It's an experience we all share. However, here is the good news. If we can manage to tolerate the discomfort of acknowledging and examining our regrets, our regrets can be our greatest wisdom teachers. Last year, both of my kids were lucky to have amazing teachers during a very strange school year. After a year of virtual school, last academic year kicked off with the Delta variant and then transitioned to the Omicron variant and ended with a lot of people taking their masks off. It was a year of constant risk assessment and constant readjustment. One of their teachers in particular was so warm, gentle, and kind. She was such an excellent communicator and leader in the midst of this very weird time. And we were so happy for her when she announced last winter that she would be retiring at the end of the school year to spend more time with her husband and with her adult children and her young grandchildren. And a couple months after that announcement, we were shocked to learn that her husband had sustained a serious injury and was hospitalized and he died soon after. What a nightmare. What a living nightmare. This treasure of a human being, now bereft, grieving, robbed of her spouse, robbed of all the dreams that they had together, and so abruptly, we didn't see her again after we got the email announcing his death. It felt impossible to integrate how somebody so gentle, so kind, could experience such a brutal and sudden loss. And so, how did I respond? Well, I organized some other parents around getting her a Grubhub gift card, which was sent electronically because I bought it online. I brought baked goods to the school staff. I spent a good chunk of an evening one night texting with another mom about her feelings and how she might respond, feeling very useful in my capacity to offer support. But at no point did I actually get around to writing her a card or sending her an email or doing anything to personally acknowledge her devastating loss. I really meant to. I wrote to her in my head a million times but for some reason in real life, I stalled. And then time passed. I think I stalled because I wanted to do it really right. I wanted to do it really well. And then I didn't end up doing it at all. And I also didn't have her address and I felt too embarrassed to ask the school for it so long after I felt that I should have reached out because then that would reveal to them that I hadn't done anything yet. So pretty soon, so much time had passed that it was strangely easy to let this task go undone for another day and another day. And this is where the regret really took hold and just froze me with self-criticism because what was my problem? I am a minister of pastoral care who can't write a condolence card. 
this is like all of my training and everything I believe in. And I felt like such a jerk. And at this point, there are two things that were true at the very same time. The first thing is that I let this experience become my teacher. After this, when someone I knew experienced a loss or a hardship, I would reach out very quickly because I wanted to avoid the entrenched regret of the phantom unwritten condolence card. So I would just do it. I would reach out somehow. You know, you don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to care. And so this part of me grew as a result of this regret. And yet at the same time, even as I invited this regret to teach me and shape my future action, a second thing was also true, which is that I still didn't write the card. Finally, this fall, I asked another parent for this teacher's address and she texted it right back to me, it was embarrassingly easy. And then I did nothing with it. And the honest to God truth is that it wasn't until I was in the middle of writing this very sermon, that is when I found myself about to disclose this regret to you, that I just put everything down, wrote her a heartfelt, sincere note, put a stamp on it and slipped it into the mailbox. And you know what? It took about 10 minutes. And I felt this weight slip from my shoulders as I realized that I could let go of this regret because I finally did the right thing. And this lesson will stick with me even more strongly because I'm telling you all about it right now. It matters who we tell about our regrets. In the words of Anne Lamott, you have to make mistakes to find out who you aren't. You take the action and the insight follows. You don't think your way into becoming yourself. I became more myself in that experience. And I also know that most regrets can't be addressed in a quick 10 minutes. Although you would be amazed at just how quickly you can text someone that you've been thinking about them and tell them that you'd love to get back in touch, but I digress. What's real is that regrets can run very, very deep and be very hard to engage with. But even the most complex and painful regrets have the capacity to be our greatest wisdom teachers, to show us how we can live lives of integrity, meaning, and joy. But first we have to get ourselves to a place where we are ready to receive the teaching, which means embracing discomfort and disclosure. Discomfort is just part of the deal. Being willing to tolerate discomfort, of the discomfort of our regret. And you know, it is just so much easier to blame someone else for our inner discomfort than to own it and feel it and let ourselves be accountable for it and offer ourselves compassion. I know that my husband gets blamed for a lot of mysterious things that are actually me being frustrated with myself. Regret is uncomfortable and we need to develop the strength to acknowledge it anyway. To notice and to sit with that churning in our stomach when we think about it and hopefully to offer ourselves some compassion. And this 
allows us to become receptive to teaching and to growth. Once we've tolerated the discomfort, the next invitation is to disclose the regret. Discomfort, disclosure. When we share our mistakes and regrets with someone else, we can begin to make sense of them and we experience an unburdening. It helps us to get unstuck and organize our thoughts in our life and helps us get ready to learn and grow. But sharing our regrets can also feel deeply vulnerable, frighteningly vulnerable. And we might worry that someone would like us less or lose respect for us if we told them about our big mistake. The good news here is that according to Dan Pink, evidence shows that self-disclosure builds affinity much more than it triggers judgment. In other words, self-disclosure can make you even more likable. All the more reason to just go for it. Open up about what happened to someone you trust, to your journal. Choose that person or that way. Discomfort and disclosure. When we're willing to lean into discomfort and disclosure, we open ourselves up to the wisdom teaching of regret. And when we are willing to grow and deepen in spirit, it is not too late. If we can muster the emotional maturity to truly own our failures of action or inaction, we step onto a path of greater courage, integrity, and kindness. And throughout our lifespan, we know we keep growing. It doesn't stop. And the future needs people whose goodness and bravery is hard won and cemented deep within them. The future needs people who are living examples to their children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors of what it looks like to live a life grounded in accountability and bravery and a tenacious commitment to doing the right thing. It is not too late to become a disciple of courageous love. In fact, you are right on time. Right on time to do the right thing, right on time to reach out, right on time to take a risk. It's not too late. You are right on time. You know, it's interesting in Helene's sermon, she shared some of her personal regrets and I noticed that a number of them had a significant gender component or were completely about gender. It's not surprising because of the huge part that gender plays in our lives, which is actually one of the reasons that our next series, which we're going to start next week, is going to be on the topic of gender. It's called Gender Fluent. And the invitation for all of us is to be curious, conversant, and courageous comes to gender. We're taking this up not because we want to focus on other people's genders, but we actually want to center our own. Because we think that gender is a little bit strange for all of us. It's going to be a really amazing series. I'm going to be sharing a message next week called Strange and Sacred. And the week after, we have what might be my favorite title for a message. We have a guest speaker, Catherine Bond Stockton, who's a queer theorist out of Utah. She's going to be preaching a sermon entitled Kissing Like a Unitarian. You're not going to want to miss it. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Deeper Podcast. As always, everything we do is because you make it possible. So we appreciate all of the support that you give us. And if you want to let us know how things are going and what you think of the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach us at deeperpod at foothillsuu.org. And we'd love to hear from you. We always do. So thanks for listening, and I hope you're having a great day.